1: Hi, uh, this is Aaron Weinacht, and uh, we're back here with the uh, new books in history. I'm talking to Professor Rosa Magnus' daughter about her new book on Soviet uh, propaganda. It's called "Enemy Number One." So, thank you for being with us, Professor.
2: Well, thanks for having me.
1: Can you uh, can you give us t- a little bit of info about yourself here to uh, start off? Where you went to school, who you studied with, what your dissertation was about, and so on.
2: Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, I went to graduate school at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where I had the privilege to study with uh, Don Raleigh, uh, uh, the Soviet expert at the University of Chapel Hill. It was a great environment, uh, very supportive. I came uh, as a very, I guess, unknowing Icelandic uh, student. I had just finished my BA degree at the University of Iceland when I came to do a PhD in uh, in the United States, and um, I was interested in the Cold War from the beginning and really interested in the Cold War from the Russian side. But I was rather ignorant of the way uh, American graduate school programs worked. So I didn't quite realize that I would become a Russianist. So I'm kind of an accidental Russianist, uh, but uh, I've really enjoyed it. I had to learn Russian as I went to graduate school. And uh, so it was quite intensive. But as I said, I had a great advisor, Uh, Don Rowley Was really amazing, and uh, this uh, book that we're actually going to talk about started as a dissertation project at UNC many, many years ago.
1: (laughs) Yeah, lots of uh, lots of books do start out that way. I was I was wondering, um, you've got you've got the the book listed as covering the era from forty five to fifty nine. Do you think you could explain what makes that a logical period to look at Soviet ideology specifically?
2: Oh, yeah, sure. Um, It was my interest was in uh, perceptions of the United States of America. And as you can imagine, when I went to the archives to start digging for uh, how in particular uh, People, ordinary people or Soviet citizens uh, perceived of the United States. uh, Looking for these kinds of sources was difficult. It's kind of like searching for a needle in a haystack in terms of uh, finding anything out about popular opinion or just the popular reception of uh, ideas about America in that period. Uh, And uh, when I sort of started reading more about the efforts and the way that uh, Soviet... um, Uh, propaganda was orchestrated in relations to the United States, I was immediately sort of intrigued by the post-war period, this transition from uh, friend and ally to uh, enemy number one, to this ultimate uh, foe. And then uh, as sort of looking at the changes, and the changes really don't start to happen until after Stalin dies, And one of the narratives in the book is really about how extraordinarily quickly that narrative does uh, change and take shape uh, after Stalin's death. And finding an end point was rather difficult, I would say, until I sort of realized that uh, I could focus on this period of Soviet-American cultural relations before they were officialized before we had the official exchange agreement, which was signed at the beginning of uh, 1958, after several months of negotiation between the Soviet and American sides. And then, of course, uh, the, the reason to include 1959 was to sort of show the first full year of Soviet-American cultural exchanges, official cultural exchanges, and how remarkable those efforts were, and really, as I sort of try to get at in the epilogue to the book, the year 1959 is both the beginning of these cultural exchanges and really the year where most excitement uh, is is going on about these relationships with the national exhibits in both New York and uh, Moscow, and then uh, Khrushchev visiting the United States of America, and then. As uh, you probably saw when you uh, read the book, there are a lot of narratives going on because I also find found out that a part of the revival of Soviet-American uh, cultural relations in the mid-1950s and Khrushchev advocating for this discourse of peaceful coexistence was really, uh, to a great extent, about the Soviet-American War Alliance. So I went back and sort of looked at how the Soviet-American War Alliance, which was, of course, celebrated during the Second World War, was then completely silenced during the Stalin time. And then, uh, as a part of Khrushchev's narrative of peaceful coexistence, was celebrated and how people really jumped on this opportunity, in especially 1959, to celebrate this uh, important part of how they perceived of the Great Patriotic War or the Second World War. Namely, this uh, alliance with the United States of America. So there were both, I guess, practical reasons to limit uh, this topic to some extent, but also I think that there were logical uh, beginnings and endings to choosing these these dates, nineteen forty-five, and then nineteen fifty-nine. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, you you're suggesting at one point in the uh, in the book that you thought that the USSR kind of needed an enemy, and so when I was thinking about how you. You periodized the book. I was wondering what, uh, why didn't they need an enemy after after 1959? I mean, did they get a new one, or was it just less ideologically essential to to have you know the capital E enemy? Oh,
2: that's a good question. Yeah, I like the uh, this idea of the Soviet Union sort of needing an enemy to sustain support for the regime. I borrow some. Uh, great quotes from uh, British uh, scholar, professor David Codd about precisely, you know, this need for Soviet citizens to know where they stood in relations to enemies. I mean, earlier it was, you know, the reds against the whites. And then we had the whole, uh, you know, the Kulak was the enemy. And then of course it was very easy to unify the Soviet population against uh, the fascists and uh, Nazi Germany during the second world war. And uh, I, did not mean to suggest that uh, the American enemy only exists for that period of time. It does continue, and especially you know, after this great year of 1959, when we then have the shooting down of the U-2s by airplane, and then later the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, America appears, of course, as the number one enemy, be- because as long as the Cold War is... Uh, is going on. The, the, it'll always be the number one enemy. So, I guess a part of the narrative is just to show how it wasn't easy for the Soviet Americans to uh, create this enemy narrative of the of the of the United States of America, especially after the wartime alliance. The Soviet people didn't buy into it as much as they had bought into the narrative of the fascists as the number one enemy, um, and then. Sort of showing that it's that it that it changes over time. That there are ways, you know, we we go from the official top down orchestrated anti American narrative to the sort of also top down orchestrated narrative of peaceful coexistence, but a, a narrative that allows for uh, an inclusion of uh, positive statements about, especially the wartime alliance or the United States in in general. But it does fluctuate as the Cold War continues. Uh, and uh, uh, But it, it is never as um, as strong as it was in the late Stalin era, where we have the official anti-American campaign that really made it dangerous to have any kind of positive opinion of the United States of America and the Soviet Union.
1: I was wondering, kind of building on that same subject there, you know, the... Uh... You know, Stalin, it appears, made made a good bit out of the argument, that, that, that purposeful delay of the second front argument. Is that something the Soviet public kind of bought into, do you think?
2: Yeah, it, it is very difficult to say what the Soviet public bought into in terms of these official narratives. But for sure, that was something that was repeated again and again and in popular culture very famously in that, uh, one of the most famous anti-American films that I write about, their meeting on the Elbe, um, and how sort of it was perceived as uh, yes, you came, but you came very late. We had already done, you know, what needed to be done for that war to be over. So that it was a very strong uh, part of the official narrative about how to perceive of the Second World War. And, and the uh, and the uh, American uh, alliance with the Soviet Union, but uh, how the Soviet people saw it is always going to be very uh, difficult to get at. And you know, ultimately, that was what I tried to <laughs> do in the in the book, in the research, is to get at these uh, popular opinions or utterances about the United States and the. And what I saw was precisely the opposite of that official narrative, namely that people you know looked back at these years with sort of ah uh, you know nostalgia thinking about the time when we had been friends and we had cooperated, and why do we now have to you know be so hostile to one another and stuff like that
1: hmm. yeah a reception is uh always difficult to figure out, yeah. I was curious. Um, you, you argued in the in the first chapter of your book that American propaganda was a lot more monolithic than Soviet propaganda was. I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit on why that is.
2: Um, you mean that Amer- I argue that American propaganda towards the Soviet Union?
1: Yeah, that um, at least I got the impression. Correct me if I'm wrong. That uh, you thought that American propaganda about about the Soviet Union took a more consistent uh, consistent line, whereas uh, Soviet propaganda about America was a lot more variegated. Yeah.
2: Um, okay, yeah, that's that- that's really yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, the when you read the sort of historiography about. Cold War propaganda and the American perception of the Russians. It's really just, you know, there is sort of a group that is labeled the Russians or the communists, and that sort of just describes an enemy of American values and, you know, the communists versus the capitalists. So the bipolarity is very strong uh, in the American historiography and on American, early American Cold War propaganda. But I think what maybe surprises uh, a lot of readers is how, even if the Soviet propaganda is extremely, like I say, like, um, I mean, it, it is very strong. There's a very clear picture of how to, you know, perceive of the enemy, but it's more nuanced than we have formerly believed. You know, this idea of the dual America or the second America. I mean we maybe think about it in relations to how the personal is not political or you know political this division that the public often has between the personal and the political. But the propag the Soviet propaganda was really trying to make this point that there were good Americans, there were progress progressive Americans, you know, socialist, you know, people with sympathies for the Soviet Union, but they were also repressed by the capitalist warmongers, you know, the, the Wall Street uh, greedy, rotten capitalists, as they would call them. So I found that kind of interesting. And it made it maybe even more confusing for some Soviet citizens that there were these uh, coexisting narratives of the, of the United States, also in these early years of uh, anti-Americanism.
1: So you you haven't noticed that there's any any Russian equivalent to the the good American and Soviet propaganda? Like, were there is there any sense in which there were good Russians and bad Russians for Americans, as there were good and bad Americans for Russians?
2: Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. I haven't really thought about that, but that's uh, yeah. I
1: don't know. Yeah I've I've uh, that's not something I I know a lot about either perhaps that's a, a research project waiting to be yeah. uh, waiting to be done there. Yeah. Uh I was I was curious in that chapter this is I guess maybe just kind of a idiosyncratic interest of mine but you were talking about Jack London mm-hmm. a bit and I was wondering, was the actual book, The Iron Heel, ever translated into Russian? Because I saw that you, you talked about there was a film made in 1919, but I was never able to track down if the actual text of the book was translated. Do you know if it was?
2: Oh, I don't don't know in particular of that book, or I don't remember. Like, I've seen lists of books that were translated at uh, certain points in time, but they're like, you know, the whole Book publishing business in the Soviet Union at this point in time was so it was so confusing. Like they didn't pay royalties, and it was really not um, you know it's not easy to find full lists of uh, books that were published or available, uh, especially that early. It's easier when the time passes uh, in the fifties and in the sixties, but uh, I wouldn't know. I'm sorry. Yeah, they were really interested in these what these authors that they labeled progressive american authors Yeah,
1: i just thought that was interesting since that's it seems like that book would kind of be a, a, a high level candidate for translation uh but i was unable to 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 uh you know find much out about it. i mean i remember reading it when i was in graduate school but uh um I was, I was wondering, too, you, you mentioned in that same chapter that um, <clears throat> there was uh, you know, the presence of a lot of American machinery and equipment and so on that caused a lot of heartburn for propagandists, uh, I guess, since it's hard to argue that your stuff is better if we're using other people's stuff. So I, I was wondering, you know, how did they actually deal then with the presence of American equipment? Like, did they just ignore it or... How, how was that dealt with, kind of at the ideological level?
2: Oh, I mean, at the ideological level in the post-war period, in the yeah, as of nineteen forty-six, nineteen forty-seven, it was not mentioned at all. Like it was not; it was completely gone. Like I talk a little bit about how when John Steinbeck went on his famous uh, nineteen forty-seven visit to the war-torn uh, Soviet Union and encountered these, uh, you know, factories that had been. Yeah, rebuilt in the in the Soviet Union and all these. uh, I mean, there were still a lot of products and machinery just from lend lease and the Second World War, and uh, but that was it was completely silenced. It was it was not allowed to discuss it or include it, and that's why also some of the you know the creative intelligentsia, the the playwrights, or just the uh, people responsible for uh staging uh props uh in the theaters were uh got into trouble if they're uh if they when they were trying to stage america like even a very anti-american view of the united states that it was very very difficult to please the authorities because they just didn't want any mention of it at all it was really gone (laughs)
1: Is there is there any effort to actually get rid of American machinery and equipment, or are we just trying to you know get what we can out of it and and while well, not talking about it? You I know? think the
2: latter. I, I don't know completely, but I think the latter. It was really yeah, let's just gloss over it. But I mean, uh, it was and, and not mention it and not celebrate it in any way, which was a contrast to both the Second World War, where the Soviet Union had accepted and needed these products, and also these earlier narratives from the 1920s and 1930s where parts of American progress were actually openly celebrated in the the Soviet Union. So that's also part of my argument is that it's not easy to all of a sudden silence all discussion, all praise of anything American in Soviet society, when for decades now it had been sort of, okay to look at some aspects of American society that were sort of seen as adaptable, that that could be useful for creating, of course, a socialist and a superior modernity, but uh, there was some acceptance of American uh, progress and American successes in the 1920s and 1930s, and that was completely gone in the 1940s.
1: You uh, you brought up Steinbeck's visit uh, earlier. Maybe you could uh, uh, tell everybody kind of just what, what Steinbeck was up to on that visit, just a little bit about uh, the, the overall intention of that and how it turned yeah. out.
2: Yeah, he had been uh, to the Soviet Union earlier in the 1930s, and the 1947 visit to the Soviet Union was kind of a last sort of visit or a part of his uh, uh, sort of Traveling through war torn Europe. So he has, he was a sort of, yeah, it was a part of a sort of war journalism, I guess. And uh, the Soviet Union was really hesitant. The authorities were not accepting or inviting a lot of foreigners uh, in these years uh, with the Soviet Union completely in ruins. But they do decide to uh, accept John Steinbeck also because he was perceived as one of those progressive authors that would be or could potentially be of. Used to the Soviet mission, uh, as is of course well known, especially in the interwar years, the Soviet Union relied on intellectuals to come uh, to the Soviet Union and be impressed and then write about it and lecture about it in their home countries. And they definitely hoped that Steinbeck uh, would uh, be of use to them in 1947. Uh, And then he arrived with a very famous photographer, uh, Robert Kappa, and uh, wrote uh, articles. Uh, for American publications and then later published the uh those articles in book form the Russian journal which is I guess one of the most famous Russian or, or travelogues uh journalistic accounts of uh the post-war Soviet Union and uh it is a really interesting book uh just about sort of how uh what kind of uh, Soviet society he encounters, you know, as a guest of the Soviet Union, there's confusion about who and what cultural organizations are responsible for him and Kappa when they arrive in Moscow. And then they travel uh, also through uh, through areas that are ex- experiencing famine in uh, 1947. And uh, then what is, I guess, really interesting is that in the archives, I found these uh, reports uh, written by the people who were, uh, you know, traveling with them, their Sputniks, or what, uh, uh, I don't recall what I would call them in English, the people who, yeah, they were their guides and traveled with them and also wrote reports to the authorities about how they behaved and uh, sort of what uh, sparked their interest and what they were particularly looking after. And they did definitely try to prevent them from uh, paying too close attention to uh, areas that were torn down, to poverty, uh, people who were dressed poorly, and they they were frustrated with how interested uh, Steinbeck and Kappa, the Kappa, the man with the camera, was of course very dangerous to them. I mean, both uh, uh, both uh, Steinbeck's pen or typewriter, and then of course Kappa's camera were perceived of as very valuable and uh, dangerous weapons in the propaganda war at the same time. but they So they did what they could to uh, control their perceptions of the Soviet Union. Um, Steinbeck wrote about precisely the kind of confusion that I also saw in a lot of different types of sources, uh, not just these kinds of uh, literary accounts. He writes about Soviet people's confusion about, you know, we were just allies a couple of years ago and why should we be uh, enemies now? Uh, Stalin had also started a very pervasive rumor about a new world war, about the third world war on the horizon. And this time it would be uh, the United States and the United Kingdom, the former allies that would start that war against the Soviet Union. So there was a lot of uh, confusion, uh, and also a lot of sort of uh, a lot of feelings, sort of involved about how people didn't didn't see that as a uh, productive and and were. I mean, Seinfeld was really sort of happy, like this kind of people to people, yeah, diplomacy is maybe too much at this point in time, but just the personal contacts were really valuable uh, for the readers then of Steinbeck to understand that uh it wasn't all about to you know not not all Soviet people were anti-American at that point in time. And the trip actually was then evaluated uh by the Soviet authorities as a failure. Uh he was not seen I mean he did he was too critical of the Soviet Union for them to be pleased with uh, with what he what he wrote in the end. Yeah.
1: So what what uh, that actually was kind of my next question was, um, you know, with given that so much of Steinbeck's visit was staged, you know, I invariably, you know, you think of the the infamous Petyomkin villages of uh, Catherine the Great there. Uh, you know, what What actual harm did the Soviet authorities think Steinbeck's visit did if so much of the reality he encountered was uh, staged? I mean,
2: yeah, it was definitely staged, but there's, there was no way of hiding, you know, how poor the infrastructure was uh, in 1947. I mean, it was really um, just in terms of, you know, hotels or or a restaurant, like there was really no uh, infrastructure ready to accept foreigners. And there were plenty of opportunities for them to see, uh, you know, dirty streets and, uh, and poor. So even if you have the, you know, the the showcase uh, farm or factory, that wasn't enough to to uh, cover up for the, the sort of st- the devastation that was very visible to to stand back in the in the Soviet Union and also because it was in con- it, it was in stark contrast to what he had seen earlier in the 1930s when things are really you know there's this uh, optimism and uh, massive um, uh, industrialization and very visible changes so so I think that uh, they, they took a risk by accepting somebody of his statute knowing very well that he would uh, write uh, and be and, and and people would pay attention to what he was writing about the Soviet Union. And but they were hoping that he would be uh that he would be more more friendly, probably hoping then that he would not focus or not be too critical of what he saw. And then they couldn't hide. Like the Potyomkin village could not hide the devastation of the of the war and the infrastructure um for foreigners was just not there. Yeah.
1: Thank you. Uh, maybe we could uh, talk a little bit about a, a different kind of uh, contact here. I was wondering if you could explain what the uh, Voice of America broadcasts were and what kinds of things made the Soviet authorities so worried about those and so on.
2: Yeah. Okay, so the the United States in this period of... Uh, uh, anti-Americanism, where contacts are really uh, shut off, like there is really almost no cultural contact between the Soviet Union and the United States in the late Stalin era. Uh, But the Voice of America were the... And and then the publication of a glossy journal called America, uh, or America, uh, were the only two ways they had to uh, reach the Soviet population. And the difference between the two was that America was actually legal. It was actually... Uh, written in agreements between the Soviet Union and the United States that they would publish reciprocal journals in uh, the uh, yeah in each other's countries and uh, help with distributing them. That the you know fate of America and Soviet Union was of course that the Soviet authorities did everything they could to obstruct the the distribution of the magazine in the Soviet Union, and uh, as I also show in the book, they ended up persecuting. Uh, people who you know had claimed that they had read it, or you know had read this legal publication in the in the Soviet Union, and the Voice of America is of course different because it's not legal, like it's not something that was agreed upon between the two states. But uh, this these radio broadcasts were, uh, 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 yeah, people could get them with a certain type of. Uh, of a radio uh, in the in the Soviet Union, and uh, I guess the content was uh, about you know there was a there was a strong focus just on American values, American democracy, American uh, social welfare, uh, all these kinds of topics that were broadcast to the Soviet people in Russian and in other languages of the of the Soviet Union, uh, and then they had very popular music uh, musical programs i guess they were the most popular uh, programs that the voice of america broadcast into the soviet union and they as i argue in the book like the most sort of important evidence of how the soviet authorities perceived of these radio programs is of course the fact that they tried to jam them and they did do so quite successfully in the big cities but outside of the big cities and in the in a lot of uh, smaller cities and towns throughout the Soviet Union, they were easily easily reachable, and uh, to, according to a lot of people, uh, they appreciated these uh, voices from abroad. Voice of America was, of course, only one of these uh, radio broadcasts uh, during the Cold War. Um, we had, you know, anything from uh, Deutsche Welle, Voice of Israel, BBC also had um, uh, broadcasts and uh, the Russian Russians even had a verb for uh, yeah BBC you. I'm uh, BBC I'm listening to BBC so these broadcasts were really really important and they were an important uh, tool for for the United States uh, to reach to reach uh, Soviet audiences definitely
0: this episode is brought to you by Shopify.
1: As far as both the, the radio broadcasts and the, the uh, America magazine, um, you think the state was, was right to be worried about the contents of these? I mean, did you run across any evidence to suggest that, you know, people who read the magazine or listen to the broadcast, that this actually made them more skeptical of their own state? Or do you think the state's worries were kind of overblown?
2: Oh, I think they were overblown for sure. I think that uh, they, the fact that they forbade and you know went after people who, who listened or or read these uh, publications, uh, made it of course I mean it escalated the the problem and the differences because a lot of what happened. I mean, it, but it's 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 difficult because I mean the whole Soviet propaganda mission, especially during the late Stalin era, is really about. I mean, they they repeatedly say something about telling the truth about socialism, telling the truth about the Soviet Union, or they have to help their audiences, both domestic and international, to reach correct conclusions about the Soviet Union. So all of the media, all of the information that the Soviet public is getting, also just about the domestic uh, situations, about their domestic realities, uh, is really... You know, far removed from the realities of their everyday lives. Like, this is a very known story. You know, the Pravda or, or, Izvestia, like the main publications are not sort of say, telling the truth about what is going on in uh, people's everyday realities. And, um, I mean, to an extent that when, uh, people realize, you know, they, they lie about everything that's going on here, why wouldn't they lie about what's going on also in the United States? They just, start to distrust any kind of narrative about you know inside or outside realities and i think that uh, if the authorities had been more relaxed about uh these american publications about the american realities that were uh yeah also of course you know sort of yeah put in a very positive light in the in these kinds of publications it might have yeah like you said it might have just made it less of an issue issue for the for the public but because it was forbidden and there was something you know that told the people that they don't want us to to read this or hear this then then something must be here that is then more true than what we are hearing from our own authorities
1: yeah so you also discussed a magazine going from the other direction that the USSR slash uh, Soviet Life magazine. What do you, do you see? That uh, do you think the contents of those publications are are pretty similar? Like do Americans tend to want to tell Russians the same sorts of things that Russian? magazines want to tell americans about their respective countries Oh, that was
2: really i think uh, quite interesting especially when in the aftermath of the soviet american revival in 1955 when the soviet cultural organizations start to really sort of yeah they're just able to work normally again after the uh, uh, late stalinist era is over and then uh, one of the things that they start focusing on is how they are perceived in the United States. And this journal that you mentioned, USSR or Soviet Life, is uh, uh, one of those uh, case studies that I have that show how how they were just completely missing out on uh, reaching American audiences. And I found it extremely interesting that they they still had friends in the United States, you know, uh, f- friends from the National Council of American Soviet Friendship and people who really wanted to help them reach, uh, reach American audiences with uh, some kind of message about Soviet modernity and the, so, the sort of successes of Soviet socialism. And they... Form something like focus groups. So they have well meaning, considerate American friends of the Soviet Union read these journals and then point out what is wrong with them and why they are not reaching American audiences. So the Soviets were way too focused on, you know, yet another uh, tractor factory or some uh, uh, war heroes that the American public just was not interested in at all. So they keep telling them, you need to show us, you know, happy families and kids playing in the park. And, you know, how do how does how do Soviet workers spend their leisure time? And those kinds of topics are topics that the American public would be would be interested in. And I found it really interesting that it it is really kind of like a focus group and they do get a lot of well-meaning feedback and suggestions for improving their image in the United States of America. But somehow the message does not get across at all. And of course, the American journal in the Soviet Union was precisely, you know, especially as the 1950s progress and the Cold War uh, increasingly becomes a war that is about consumption and convenience. Uh, they do, you know, use that in their material and have great success with it, uh, uh, showing washing machines and uh and uh, tools that will help, uh, especially, yeah, um, uh, housewives or, or mothers uh, make their lives easier. Yeah, for sure.
1: Wait, why do you think that is that, uh, as you put it a second ago, I think you said the message didn't really get across from the the focus groups to the people who are putting the magazine together. Like, why do you, what do you think the... Yeah. The block was. Yes,
2: I mean, that was one of the things that I really found quite shocking because there were more examples of this. Like when in 1955, we see the first delegations, like the exchanges of delegations between the Soviet Union and the United States. And we have, uh you know, an agricultural delegation going to the United States, and then later this journalistic uh, delegation that I give quite a lot of space in the book, also because the the leader of that delegation, Boris Pálevoy, he was a veteran of the meeting on the Elbe where Soviet and American soldiers met at the end of the Second World War, was in sight in 1945. And then he was a member also of that famous delegation in 1955. And then um, he uh, was a part of the the soldiers who... uh, on the Soviet side, uh, helped organize the reunions between Soviet and American veterans of the meeting on the Elbe. And he wrote, I mean, all the journalists wrote books and articles in Soviet publications that were very sort of carefully treading the line between how far, you know, how much can you say that is positive about the United States? And then also adhering to the official policy of, yeah, yeah, they may be doing something Right. But, uh, you know, the Soviet Union is, uh, is the superior, uh, democracy, the the superior modernity. And he also gets this kind of advice, you know, from, uh, American, from African American activist and singer, actor Paul Robeson, who's a great friend of the Soviet Union and tells them in, in just so many words, you are, your propaganda methods are outdated. Your knowledge of the United States is really uh, you're out of touch with uh, progress that has happened in in racial and uh, social relations in the in the United States. So he sort of he really you know tells them straight out what they're doing wrong. He says you cannot you know you cannot uh, explain American racial relations based on Uncle Tom's Cabin in the year 1955. Like you are completely out of touch. So they were out of touch from 1945 to 1955, when these uh, cultural officials, members of the creative intelligentsia in the Soviet Union, who, the people who uh, were manning the you know, American desks at the cultural organizations, they did not have any access or very little access to sources about American society uh, in those years. And then what is so fascinating is that when they, When they find these contacts again, they have you know delegations and they interact with Americans on American soil and in the Soviet Union, and they talk openly and they write these reports to the authorities uh, and really nail the problem with the Soviet propaganda mission, and nothing changes. And I mean, I I found that one of the sort of major conclusions is that they had all the information to you know. Completely turn their propaganda campaign around to uh, start, you know, speaking to larger global audiences with an understanding of how, you know, far the world had come and uh, all the changes that uh, the world had seen, especially in terms of uh, this focus on racial and social inequality in the United States and all over the world. This is a big part of the international propaganda of the Soviet Union. And they they just, they don't change. It it doesn't change. And I I don't have the answer answer for why that is, because I was actually kind of surprised by how vibrant these discussions were behind the scenes. But uh, they never made it. I mean, maybe that's just sort of the whole uh, Soviet system, like how it just, you know, it was not an easy uh, system to come and make changes. It was only in, what, 1985 that, uh, that that was really uh uh possible
1: well, that's an interesting conclusion then that soviet propaganda could have been a lot more effective than it was uh yeah i was
2: yeah yeah so i th- i think so like the propaganda state like it's always been you know the soviet union as the propaganda state and i mean to me it also just shows how you know, we all know that the Cold War is based on these mis uh, misunderstandings and these fears, these mutual uh, suspicions and uh, disinformation. And now, uh, it just seems to me if the, if the American side had known how you know <laughs> insecure the Soviets actually were, like the propaganda state was really not performing to its. You know, it, they could have done a lot better had they put all their knowledge to use. Hmm. Yeah, that is yeah. an
1: interesting finding there. Yeah, so you were you were talking a bit about the the Soviet delegation to the United States, and I was wondering. I, I was really interested when I when I read your book about the uh, Soviet visits to American families, and. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. And also, I was quite curious as to what level of preparation American families would have had for those visits, how families got selected. Uh, Can you elaborate on that portion of the book?
2: Oh, yeah, I wish I I knew more about how they were selected and elaborated, because I don't really have any information on that process. But I really think it would be interesting to... To even do an oral history and talk to people who were approached, you know, about hosting Soviet delegates uh, in 1955 or even later. But it was very clear, uh, especially there in 1955, that the Soviet delegates, they had that mandate from home that they were really supposed to go out and reach into broader American society. And they were frustrated in the beginning of their trip about how difficult it was. I mean, they were just, I mean, like they said, I mean, they criticize us for shepherding people, keeping them in, you know, in planned tours with a strict itinerary, but that's exactly what's happening to us in the United States, and we are not really reaching the public. You know, they just go from... Official site to, to a to the next visit on the itinerary. So so it was also a it appears in the the way the Soviet side wrote about it that it was something that was put together uh, with after they had asked for it once they already were in the United States. So it was not something that was prepared uh, sort of well in advance. Not these uh, home visits, but it would be really interesting to to know more about the american side i know from what the soviet uh, uh, delegates wrote about them is that uh, they you know I very clearly uh, say in the reports that the american public has a great sympathy for the soviet war effort and we should be uh, using our sort of we should be celebrating the alliance we should be celebrating our efforts to Fight that war together, and it'll it'll only benefit us because it will also bring out more sort of attention to our accomplishments during the Second World War, and we can use that. And it was really focused on how mutually, you know, ordinary people in the United States were uh, just as <laughs> uh, wanting of a uh, long lasting peace, and we're not, uh, uh, and wanted to, you know, do everything they could so that the nuclear uh, threat would uh, stop dominating their lives and believed in these kinds of personal contacts. But overall, the yeah, the Soviets were really they were impressed with the way that uh, even you know small towns in America organized the welcome to their you know delegates. The uh, that people really you know embraced them and showed them a lot of friendliness. But I was also like you said, like it was really interesting that then. They were, they wanted, that wasn't enough, it wasn't enough to sort of be greeted at the train station or when they passed through, they wanted to visit people in their homes.
1: So is it fair to say then that um, you, back at the beginning, we talked about how the Soviet uh, propaganda kind of divided Americans into good Americans and bad Americans. Do you think that those home visits, did that kind of reinforce the divide between good Americans and bad Americans then?
2: Oh, I think absolutely. I think that it uh, it did stay, you know, in the, in the narrative, even with, uh, you know, peaceful coexistence. But it definitely, it was sort of like, there are a lot of good Americans who share our understanding of international relations and do not want war and advocate for peace. So definitely, that was a... And it was a way for the Soviets also to sort of keep face about their you know, their their propaganda in the past few years, because they had also pointed out that the good American existed. Yeah, it wasn't all. I mean, that was when maybe the the slight nuance of the anti-American campaign benefited them.
1: Do uh, I was wondering, too, if you could talk a bit about the impact of the uh, 1956 uh, World Youth Festival. That's something we haven't talked about yet.
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was 1957. Sorry. Uh, the Moscow oh, Youth Festival. I'm not sure. Um, and uh, what I think is also kind of interesting. I focus a lot on the 1955 revival of uh, Soviet American cultural exchanges, and it was really, I mean, the very, very first Western students who came to the Soviet Union to study after the Second World War were actually two Icelandic students, and they came in 1954. So the sort of position to hold the this uh, youth festival, it was the sixth uh, youth festival in a long series of these Cold War uh, e- propaganda events, socialist events. Uh, th- that decision came uh, around 55, 56. I'm not exactly sure when that decision was finalized. But I also always found it interesting that after, you know, the yeah, 56 with the secret speech and then later with uh, Hungary uh, people kept saying, you know, now Khrushchev probably wishes that he could he could uh, change his mind because now it is really kind of dangerous to allow all these youth to enter the Soviet Union. But it was too late for him to back out. And it was, I mean, a, an event that uh, took an enormous amount of planning and coordination throughout the Soviet Union. And uh, they ended up greeting Thirty thousand foreign uh, youth and students in Moscow in the summer of 1957, and uh, it was uh, the sort of biggest opening of the Soviet borders since the since the Second World War. The you know it's, it was only during the Second World War that the Soviet people were able to interact with foreigners to the extent that they were during the World Youth Festival. A lot of the delegations traveled by train, so they went, you know, to different uh, parts of the country on their way to Moscow. And all the Soviet delegates also traveled uh, from all over the country. So Moscow was really uh, vibrant, and and it was the type of mega event where the city is cleaned up completely. You know, uh, homeless uh, people are taken away and. And the and the street lights are particularly bright for the duration of the, of the, of the trip, and uh, Khrushchev, of course, wanted to use this to showcase Soviet superiority and the accomplishment since the Second World War, and that I mean that was a partially I think a success, but uh, it is mainly remembered for the impression that it left on Soviet citizens, like meeting so many so many foreigners and especially uh, Western uh, youth. There were not many Americans at the World Youth Festival. There were only uh, a little bit over 100 and they suspected that a, a large part of them were uh, CIA recruits. And they were probably right <laughs> that uh, quite a few of them were. But there were very big delegations from a lot of other countries and they were not all uh, you know, fellow travelers or sympathizers with the Soviet Union. Uh, a lot of young people, also just saw it as an opportunity to travel and see this uh, superpower from the inside so it was a really I think uh, and it's an event that is remembered um uh, uh yeah to this day as a as an event where this opening to the outside world really really took place and it left a great impression on a lot of Soviet people
1: do you think that overall the uh, the, the festival achieved its its objectives or do you think it was Sort of a uh, you know a mixed blessing in the in the same sense that they evaluated Steinbeck's uh, visit.
2: Oh no, it it was uh it was seen as a success. I think uh it was uh it's it was so huge and it really did open up the uh sort of I mean they they were more accepting, I guess, of the fact that it that no not everybody would walk away with a positive experience from the Soviet Union they knew they couldn't I mean they tried to control uh perceptions uh of the Soviet Union also in 1957 but they were more accepting than uh they were in 1947 and yeah more realistic uh in terms of understanding that uh, a lot of people would walk away with uh with a different perception I think that uh what um the fact that they were left with um a change in the perception at home uh, probably came more as a surprise to them uh in 1957 that yeah it's one thing to control the perception of foreigners and they were also shepherded around and uh even if they could walk freely around uh for a lot of the time i mean the the trips that they were taken on uh were orchestrated of course but uh, they, they had to deal with the impressions of the Moscow Youth Festival for a long time after 1957 inside the Soviet Union. I have a friend, uh, Pia Koivunen, who has actually written a whole monograph about the World Youth Festivals. So that'll be out soon. And she has some really interesting conclusions about the uh, cultural diplomacy of the, of the World Youth Festival in Moscow, 1957.
1: Well, I wouldn't mind reading that one uh, either.
2: Sure.
1: Uh- uh- Maybe maybe uh, we're getting kind of towards the end of the uh, time here. I was wondering that you had a very funny anecdote in the at uh, the very last pages of your book. There, the one where the teacher asks Yvonne to state the point of the USSR. Uh, I was wondering if you could uh, uh, you know tell that that little uh, story there, the exchange between Yvonne and his teacher, and what significance you think that has.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that's great that you that you noticed that it's one of the it's just a I mean it's a, there's a lot of jokes from the Soviet period and there are also books about how people dealt with Soviet life and Soviet realities by telling these very marked uh, uh, political jokes and I really think that this joke that I recite is really sort of confirmed all this ambivalence uh, about attitudes towards the United States of America and the Soviet Union. So it's a teacher that was quizzing her pupils on the difference between decadent capitalist America and socialist Russia. Tell us, Ivan, she asked, what is the United States like? The United States is a capitalist country where millions of people are unemployed and where millions of others are starving. He recited. That is very good, Ivan. Now, Sasha, you tell us what is the goal of the Soviet Union? To catch up with the United States. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's it. And I think that it's really, it, it just exactly points down, you know, like that. And, and, and I also point out, I mean, anti-Americanism is complicated. And this idea of, you know, a lot of unemployment and, uh, and uh, yeah, social and racial inequality in the United States, it was not wrong there were issues in the United States at this point in time, but it was the way that they did it uh, and the way that uh, all sort of opinions about the United States were suppressed and then how they can maintain all these things about the United States as this evil capitalist country, but at the same time with Khrushchev's narrative, yeah, you know, we are still here to uh, catch up with the United States. Yeah,
1: I was, I was wondering, um, the, that joke there at the end of the book made me, made me think of this, um, how Soviet propaganda dealt with the fundamental paradox that we don't want to be seen as materialistic, but our main argument for success is in production of material goods. You know, I I had a chat with uh, Professor Margaret Peacock about a, a Cold War propaganda book uh, a little while ago, and and kind of asked her the same question. I was wondering if if you'd have any thoughts on that that basic paradox.
2: Yeah, um, yeah, I heard that interview. It was great, by the way. <laughs> um, I don't really have, I guess, um, a sort of why the Soviet Union how they reconciled this. This measurement. I mean, I think it took them a took them a while. I think it was the the youth festival, the American National Exhibit in nineteen fifty nine was also left a huge mark on the Soviet population in terms of how you know the sort of ordinary life of American workers or you know American uh, uh, people were displayed for the Soviet people, and you know the souvenirs that the Soviet attendees at the at the Moscow at the national exhibit in Sokolniki uh, Park in Moscow in 1959, you know, where anything from Pepsi Cola to uh, lipstick and uh, little pins, uh, sort of. And so, so, so there was there was this sort of rhetoric about yes, okay, they offer this type of convenience, but we also provide for. Our people in a different way. And they tried to, I guess, uh, sort of counter the uh, American propaganda about the quality of life or the way of life in the United States. Uh, and they had a lot of people uh, also write in, and I quote some of them in the book, who were skeptical of the American successes. So they were defensive of sort of the Soviet uh, material, you know, the, the, the way that the Soviet Union provided for. Them materially with a you know the Soviet way of life, they were very skeptical of American claims of how well they provided for their own people, and also you know because of their own media realities, uh, often suspected them to be blatant uh, lies or you know false false truth. But it was definitely not easy for the Soviet Union to maintain. Uh, sort of discourse about superiority, also in terms of material products, when, you know, everything, as soon as they started opening up, you know, and the main goal for opening up was to showcase their own accomplishments, but it was always, it wasn't possible to do that unless also opening up for the accomplishments happening on the outside.
1: Oh, thank you. I was, that's a question that's always interested me, and so I was I was curious as to what you think about it. Uh, we're getting sort of towards the end of our, our time here, so I was wondering if you'd have time to comment for a few minutes on what you might be working on next.
2: Yeah, oh yeah. Uh, well, I'm actually, uh, right now I'm writing a biography of uh an Icelandic married couple, very devoted socialists and uh, Stalinists until the day they died in 1973 and 1980, respectively. And uh, Iceland is very interesting during the Cold War because Icelandic socialists had really strong ties to Moscow. So I've been working on this biography in Icelandic and Russian and German archives because they were really active in the sort of transnational, especially European. Uh, cultural elite. So that's uh, one thing that I'm actually finishing now. But the next project that I've already started, I've written a couple of papers about a project that came out of this book, uh, out of Enemy Number 1, and it actually originated with uh, something that John Steinbeck wrote about in his Russian journal. So I'm writing uh, and uh, I'm I'm looking at Soviet-American intermarriage during the Cold War, um, looking sort of at uh, Soviet... uh, especially efforts to uh, block or to uh, inhibit these marriages. And uh, John Steinbeck, he wrote about it in the Russian Journal and talked about uh, the wives of Americans and Britons who were sitting around in Moscow in 1947, and they weren't allowed to leave the Soviet Union. And uh, that sparked my interest, and it's probably well known that uh, Stalin forbade marriage with foreigners in 1947. That was probably one of the most dramatic Uh, sort of way he tried to control relations with foreign people uh, during that uh, period. And uh, yeah, so I've been looking at uh, uh, this story of Soviet-American intermarriage, uh, especially uh, how people were denied entry and exit visas. So it's a story also of uh, migration and uh, human rights in the end, because the Helsinki final act of in 1947, uh, no, sorry, the 1975 uh, Helsinki Final Act, the third basket really put a lot of attention on issues of family reunification and marriages. So, so that's what I really hope to be writing in the in the in the coming years is the history of Soviet American intermarriage during the Cold War. So personal relations, like moving sort of from the uh, cultural bureaucracy to the to the actual people who are. Impacted at the most personal level by these kinds of uh, policies. Yeah.
1: Well, that is an interesting topic. Uh, sort of uh, makes me puts me in mind of, you know, since that's contemporary to the American civil rights movement, people worrying about interracial marriage here, whereas worrying about international marriage in the USSR.
2: Absolutely, yeah, it, absolutely. That's uh, it's it's really kind of interesting, like how. Recently, uh, we have been uh, yeah, really putting lim- limits on uh, marriages. And of course, uh, family reunification is one of the big issues in just the contemporary migration stories that we're dealing with. So I'm also just interested in the Cold War roots of these types of migration patterns and how international organizations were involved. And, uh, uh, but I, also, like I said, the, the sort of very personal story and... I mean, it's very related to what I wrote about because most of the people who met and got married during the Cold War were in the Soviet Union. Uh, Most often these uh, couples uh, came out of uh, or met in the Soviet Union and they're there because of the official student exchange agreements. So they're, you know, professors or students. And so a lot of them are in our profession or...
1: Well, thank you very much, Professor. I think uh, we're about to the end of our time here. So thanks for being with us.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Okay. Uh, You have a a good day now.
2: Thanks, you too.